0: Uh, The last two songs, the one we just heard, uh, the one previous which we sang, uh, Something in Common, both based on Psalm 130, which is our text for today. And so I encourage you, invite you to turn with me in in God's Word again to Psalm 130. Uh, When when you and I, when we feel uh, besieged, I think that's a good word for it, When we feel problems mounting, arising, our knee-jerk reaction, our tendency is to look for help. Uh, Normally, usually, we look for help uh, by looking, turning to another book, right? Some of us. Another program, another seminar, another counselor, another conference, and on and on and on it goes, Uh, thinking, hoping, praying that they will... uh, Give us some help. We'll be able to glean something from these things which will help us, aid us, as we feel besieged by mounting problems. And nothing wrong with that, per se, as long as those things are grounded upon, fixed upon, rooted upon uh, the Word of God. However, a big however, word of qualification. Sadly, regrettably, at times, we turn to these things, and in so doing, We actually neglect the very thing that God has given us. Uh, We neglect, let me put it bluntly, the very thing which God has dumped, dropped in our laps. And I am referring to the book of Psalms. And in particular, I am referring to the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, in which we have a catalog, complete catalog of human experience. It is all there. And we can read these songs, and we can immediately empathize with, let me put it in slightly different terms, we can immediately (laughs) connect with those who have already traveled the very road we are traveling. And if we listen, if we lean in close, and if we heed their counsel, Listen to what the psalmists declare. Uh, we discover, we soon learn, that the answer to every problem, the answer to every human experience is what? It is looking unto God. They point us to the same, in the same direction. Uh, they force us to consider our Heavenly Father. They fix our eyes, that is, the eyes of our faith upon the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. And by looking to God, now, these psalms define our experiences. If you want to understand what you're going through, read these psalms. Now, this looking to God regulates our emotions. It informs our judgments. It shapes our perspectives. This looking to God strengthens our faith and enlarges our hope. In a word, this looking to God, as we encounter it in Psalm one third one. Twenty to 134. It quickens us. It gives us life. And that should always be our main intent when we turn to the Word of God. Thomas Manton said years ago, centuries ago, it is not enough to seek truth in the Scriptures. Let me repeat that. It is not enough to seek truth in the Scriptures. You must seek life in the Scriptures. And that is what the Spirit of God gives us in particular through the Psalms of Ascent. He imparts life as we learn from these authors, these men who walked the very road we now walk, went through the very experiences we now go through, and they teach us that in whatever experience we pass through, we must look to God. And Psalm 130 does precisely the same thing. Uh, Psalm 130, apparently, this is something I derive from secondary sources. I don't know if it's true, but uh, it's entirely plausible. Uh, Psalm 130, apparently, uh, the favorite psalm of Augustine, uh, the most famous and influential of the early church fathers, and the favorite psalm of Martin Luther and John Calvin, two of the pillars of the Protestant Reformation. And so I've got a. I've got a task before me this morning to be faithful to this psalm, a psalm which was held in such high esteem by such eminent divines of centuries gone by. Uh, One of the most famous um, and greatest theologians, that is at least within the English-speaking church, was John Owen. And John Owen in 1668 published a book on Psalm 130, 320 pages in length. I thought I'd read that for you this morning. (laughs) 320 pages in length. Interestingly enough, three-quarters of the book, he camps out on verse 4. I think it's more than three-quarters of the book, 75% of the book, he devotes to his exposition and application of the fourth verse. Why? Because at a specific juncture, point, season in his life, uh, God used this psalm mightily, powerfully in his life. And in particular, the fourth verse. Uh, he, as he reflected on that season, he wrote the following. I preached Christ for some years when I had very little, if any, experimental acquaintance with access to God through Christ. He was a believer, but he was not walking closely with the Lord. Knew very little of what it means to have an experimental acquaintance with With access to God through Christ. But the Lord was pleased to visit me. This is interesting. With sore affliction. How many of us could say that? The Lord was pleased to visit me. With sore affliction. Whereby I was brought to the very mouth of the grave. And under which my soul was oppressed with horror and darkness. But God graciously relieved my spirit by a powerful application of Psalm 130, verse 4. With you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. You know what my prayer is? My prayer has been this past week and it is this this very day. It is that some gathered here this Lord's Day uh, might discover the reality of that truth. And my prayer is that some, many gathered here this Lord's Day will rediscover the reality of that truth, that with God there is forgiveness, that he might be feared. And so that's our business. That is our goal, which lies before us. Psalm 130. Two things we need to be clear on going in, and I think these will serve us well. The first concerns the psalmist's subject. It is confession, the confession of sin, or a better word perhaps that we might be inclined to is repentance. That is his subject matter. That is his principal theme, repentance. Bear in mind, many of you have heard me say this before, repentance is absolutely essential. It is absolutely essential. Um, Last Sunday, I explained that we are the heirs of a clumsy definition of forgiveness. And for most today, forgiveness is nothing more than an emotion, a change, a shift in my feelings. And regrettably, that understanding of forgiveness has been forced upon God. And so when people think of God's forgiveness, they actually think they are speaking of an emotion, that God has experienced a change in his emotions toward me. He isn't angry. There is no wrath. There is no judgment. It's all love. He is forgiving. He has already forgiven me. And that has resulted in what one theologian has called, rightly so, cheap grace. And you can discern cheap grace. It's very simple to identify as follows. Cheap grace justifies the sin instead of the sinner. I'm all over that one. Cheap grace justifies the sin rather than the sinner. Yeah, I sinned, but God is forgiving. Isn't that what grace is for? Cheap grace, cheap grace offers comfort Without requiring any change. That is cheap grace, worthless grace. Require offering comfort without requiring any change. No, my friends, forgiveness is not a feeling, it is a transaction. And forgiveness is rooted upon God's satisfied justice and our repentance. And forgiveness leads to what? restoration, and reconciliation with God. We must never lose sight of this. Repentance is absolutely essential. And related to repentance, not only is it essential, but it is volitional. You've heard me say this as well. Regret is what? It is being sorry mentally. Remorse is what? It is being sorry, yes, mentally, and yes, emotionally. But repentance is what? It is being sorry mentally in the mind, recognizing we've committed wrong. It is being sorry, yes, emotionally we feel it. And it is being sorry volitionally, meaning what? We actually do something about it. We actually act upon it. And So how do I know I have repented? I know I have repented when I am prepared to let go of my sin. And if I am not prepared to let go of my sin, let us not use this term flippantly, repentance. I know I have repented when and only when I am prepared to let go of my sin. As the old Puritan George Swinnick put it, when we repent, we perceive, we learn, we feel that those coals, burning embers, are now too hot to handle. Too hot to handle. And so repentance is volitional. It is when we are actually prepared to let go of our sin. That is the subject matter in this psalm, confession of sin, repentance. The second thing we need to be very clear on going in is this, the style. It's style, it's it's feel. And this psalm is full, chock full of extremes. It leads us from the depths of despair to the heights of elation. From the depths of sorrow to the heights of jubilation, from the depths of tribulation to the heights of devotion, it leads us from the crushing depths of man's depravity to the soaring heights of God's mercy. And so we're clear on its subject, repentance, we're clear on its style, it is full of extremes. Now follow along, I invite you as I read this portion of God's word for us publicly. The word of the Lord declares, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all His iniquity. It is a beautiful psalm. I can see, as I've read it, if indeed it is true, I can see, I can understand why it was Augustine's favorite, Luther's favorite, Calvin's favorite, and undoubtedly in the history of God's people, the history of the church, the favorite of countless believers through the centuries. What a wonderful work of poetry. What a wonderful glimpse into the human heart. And what a wonderful journey as this man, we don't know who he was, perhaps David, we don't know, but as this man again moves so dramatically from this, this pit, this depth of sorrow and despair to the heights of exaltation and jubilation. The psalmist actually does four things. We can trace them. It's quite simple. The first thing he does in verses one and two is simply this. He cries to God out of the depths. There it is. I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas, my cries for mercy. And so that's the first thing he does. He cries to God. Now, to understand this cry, we must be clear. I said but moments ago that we are the heirs of a a clumsy, sloppy definition of forgiveness. Uh, equally true, we're the heirs of a clumsy definition of guilt. Now, forgiveness isn't a feeling, it's a transaction. Guilt isn't a feeling. It is a condition. Oh, so important we understand that and recapture the truth and the reality of that. Guilt is not a feeling. Guilt is a Condition. And so you spend some time in a court of law, a courtroom. And there's the judge in his gown with his gavel stance, sitting there on his tribunal, so to speak. And you have the prosecuting attorney, the defense attorney. You have the accused. The evidence is presented, perhaps as a jury. The jury weighs the the evidence that is presented, the arguments presented by the lawyers. Undoubtedly, the judge weighs the evidence. And having weighed the evidence, what does he do? He passes sentence. And he only has two options, doesn't he? Either the accused is found what? Guilty or innocent. If the sentence is guilty, the accused is guilty whether he feels it or not. Whether he feels guilty is absolutely irrelevant. The accused can't sit there in his chair and say, Well, you know, judge, I don't feel guilty. Therefore, I don't think I am guilty. The judge would say what to him? I couldn't care less what you feel. On the basis of the evidence, you have broken the law and you are guilty. Guilt is not a feeling. Guilt is what? It is. It's a condition. The psalmist understands he is guilty. The psalmist understands his condition before The Supreme Judge, the Lord God Almighty. The psalmist understands that God has given His law. The psalmist understands that in the law, God has revealed His perfect, just, holy will. And the psalmist understands that He has disobeyed the law. He has transgressed the law. Therefore, His condition is what? He is guilty. But here's the thing. He knows it, and he does actually feel it. Guilt is his condition, but not only does he know it and recognize it, but he begins to feel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, conviction. There's a better word. And he feels convicted for his guilt. He feels convicted because of his standing, his legal standing before God. And so he knows what his condition is, Guilt, the sentence of condemnation. He knows it, he begins to feel it, and now he actually gives expression to his emotions. He expresses it. How? By crying out. Notice three things quickly about his cry. Number one, why he cries. Verse one, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. That is why he cries. Out of the depths. Depths, out of the deep. What are these depths? He is speaking of the depths of a disturbed conscience, of a tormented mind, and of a troubled heart. Hear what the psalmist says in Psalm 88. You, he's addressing God. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You, God, overwhelm me with all your waves. You, God, have put me in the pit. You, God, have put me in the deep, the depths. Again, it is a disturbed conscience, it is a tormented mind. And it is a troubled heart arising from what? An offended God. An offended God. It's drowning in effect. And, and I, I apologize if this is potentially disturbing for some. But, but that, is, that is the word picture he's trying to conjure up here, right? It is the picture of a man drowning. It is the picture of a man out in the deep, midst of the deepest sea. No life raft, no lifeboat, nothing to aid him or sustain him or to keep him up, worn out, wearing out. And he is beginning to, he's beginning to sink. When a man is drowning, uh, you don't need to encourage him to cry out. When a man is drowning, we don't need to exhort him or command him or counsel him to cry out. When someone is drowning, they cry out. When they perceive their peril, when they perceive their danger that God has put them in the depths, that God has sent this torrent of waves over them, they cry out. I mean, you, you know, you think of things from your past and how there are some memories that, that, of events that just, oh, they just seem, they're so tangible, aren't they still? They seem like they just happened. Yesterday, in a moment, large parts of our, of our, of our childhood, teenage years, just, just completely gone. We can't remember anything. But other incidents would just stand out. And I was maybe 13, 14 years of age. And in this big tidal wave pool in southern Ontario, playing with a frisbee, of football or something with, with friends. And uh, suddenly caught, my eye caught this, uh, this little girl, maybe six or seven years of age, from here to the wall. And uh, she was going under. She was going, and she had wandered out too far, nobody around her, head straight back, could no longer cry out because the water was going in, the gurgling was starting. But oh, the look in her eyes when she caught my eyes. And when I looked over and I saw her eyes and her staring at me, it was a cry. It was a cry for what? It was a cry for help, it was a cry for assistance. That's the word picture that he's trying to conjure up here. This is his experience. He is like a drowning man. Drowning. Perishing. And he understands where he is. He understands that these waves are all around him. He understands he cannot save himself. And he understands no one is coming to save him. And He understands there is no one on the face of the earth who can save him. And that is why he... Cries out. notice, secondly, how he cries. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Here it is, how he cries. O Lord, hear my voice. He's not even articulating anything, anything. He's simply screaming. O Lord, hear my voice. He repeats it for emphasis. Let your ears, awaken your ears, be attentive to what? To the voice, there's the word again, of my pleas. Just hear me. Hear my cry for help. Hear my scream fear. Hear me as I express. Express myself as I recognize my peril. That is how he cries. Is a cry of desperation. And then notice thirdly what he cries. The rest of verse 2. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas. Here it is. What he cries for. Mercy. Oh please friend notice what he does not say. God, let's sit down and talk about this. God, um, I'd like to go over the evidence again. I think maybe there's one or two things you neglected from my past that are actually quite outstanding and might mitigate against some of those charges you're bringing against me. None of that nonsense. Oh, God, you know, let's uh, let's just uh, step back and let me present my case. Uh, Let me uh, present a counter-argument. Uh, let me bring some other things to remembrance. Let me bring some evidence to you which perhaps have escaped your notice. None of that nonsense. This man knows he has nothing to present. This man knows he has nothing to offer. And his plea is for what? It is for mercy. That is what he cries. We see why he cries. He's in the depths. We see how he cries. Lord, hear my voice. Hear my voice. And we see what he cries. These are pleas for mercy. That's the first thing the psalmist does. He cries to God. Now we move. I hope this isn't disjointed. It's not intended to be disjointed. There's just a beautiful flow here. We move into verses 3 and 4. And here the psalmist does a second thing. He appeals to God. So he cries to God in verses 1 and 2. Now in verses 3 and 4, he appeals to God. Look carefully, closely at what he says. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand. That's reality. But, one of the most precious words in all of Scripture, but, 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 with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And so as he feels the waves pushing him down, As he cries from that pit, those depths of despair, he has this confidence, what? That God will hear him. And so he makes what? A direct appeal to God's forgiveness right there in verse 4. But before he does in verse 3, what does he go over in his mind? God's righteousness. And he draws this contrast in verse 3 between God's righteousness, verse 4, God's forgiveness. God's judgment, verse 3, and God's mercy, verse 4. Why does he do that? It's because we cannot understand forgiveness. We cannot appreciate forgiveness apart from the backdrop which is provided by God's righteousness. And so he begins with God's righteousness in verse 3. Please notice three tiny little details in there. If you, O Lord, should mark. What does he mean by that? If you, O Lord, should mark. The word literally means to preserve for punishment. That's what he's saying. If you, O Lord, should preserve for punishment. If you, O Lord, should keep for punishment. If you, O Lord, should store for punishment. Iniquities, my sins, that which has cast me into the deep. If you should mark my iniquities, the iniquities of the eye and of the ear, of the hand, of the mind, of the heart. If you should preserve and keep for judgment my every sin, my every transgression, my every iniquity. That's the first part of the sentence. Notice secondly, what does he say? O oh Lord, who could stand? Not literally stand up versus sitting down or lying down. It's a judicial term. If you, O Lord, should maintain and keep for the day of judgment my iniquities, who could stand judicially before you? Who could stand before the all-penetrating eye of, of your judgment? Who could stand before you, the one who is a consuming fire? Who could stand before you, the one whose requirement from me is absolute perfection? Who can stand before you, the one who has commanded me to love you with all my heart, soul, mind and strength? And I fall way short of that each and every moment of each and every day. If you should mark it, if you should store it up in a book, if you should keep a record of it all and preserve it for that day of judgment, who could stand? third thing I want you to notice is the name of God. A little detail. It's subtle but extremely significant. Verse 3, If you, O Lord, capital letters, it's, it's not Yahweh, it's the root of Yahweh, Yah. And so that name of God, that divine name, that personal name emphasizes what? Points to what? Points to his eternality. Points to his immutability. Reminds us of the fact that he is an all-seeing, all-knowing being. That he knows all. And he knows all and sees all our iniquities. If you, O Lord, the infinite being, should mark iniquities. Now he changes, O Lord, capital L, small O-R-D. Why? Because it is Adonai, emphasizing what? His sovereignty and his authority. Not only does God see all and see all iniquities, God judges all. And judges all iniquities. And so he is focused on the very character being of God. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He knows the answer to the question, no one could stand. There you have it, his righteousness and his righteous judgment. Now against that backdrop, in verse 4, he makes this direct appeal to what? Forgiveness. But, but, but with you. Yes, I know who you are. I know you're the Holy One. I know who I am, and I know I can't stand before the fire of your judgment. But with you, here's what I'm appealing to. With you, I know this to be true. There is forgiveness that you might be feared. Now, again, be very, very careful here. Careful. He does not say, I know that you are you are, you are one who forgives. He does not say, I know that um, you, are, you are someone who is inclined uh, to forgive sins. No, no, no. He says, I know that with you there is forgiveness. What is he describing? He is not simply describing something God does in forgiving. He is describing who God is. In your very essence, in your very nature, you are. Forgiveness. You are the Lord, yes, the one who sees all and sees all our iniquity. You are the Lord, Adonai, sovereign and all authority, all powerful to execute judgment. And you judge all and you judge all our iniquities. But I know to be equally true that in you there is forgiveness. He's appealing to the very nature of God. When God revealed his name to Moses... As it's recorded in Exodus 34, what did he declare? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is his appeal. Not simply, merely to something God does, but to who God actually is. In our care groups, this past Wednesday, we were looking at that petition in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. What does that mean? What is God's name? God's name is simply who he is. That's all it is. God's name is who He is. God's name is power. God's name is sovereignty. God's name is a holy indignation towards sinners. God's name is omnipotence, all-powerful. It is omniscience, all-knowing. God's name is majesty. It is glory. And God's name is grace. God's name is merciful. And God's name is forgiveness. That is what God revealed to Moses in Exodus 34. I don't know if the psalmist had that text in mind, but he certainly had something from the Word of God in mind. Some, Some truth which he had learned from the Word of God concerning who God is, that in His very nature, His very being, His very essence, He is forgiving. Oh, God's knowledge of the evidence, the evidence against me, it is unsearchable. And God's power to execute sentence against me, it is unstoppable. That is true. And if I should stand before God on the judgment day outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, not forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ, I will not stand. No one will stand before him on that judgment day. That is a certainty. The psalmist knows it in verse 3. But he knows equally true that God is forgiving. That with God there is forgiveness. And he tacks a wonderful statement onto the end of it. Verse 4. That you may be feared. That you may be revered. That you may be worshipped. That you may be adored. Gratitude. Gratitude spawns what? Gratitude for forgiveness leads to what? The fear of the Lord. Let me explain how this works it out briefly. And I'm going to use a few phrases I used a couple of Sundays ago. Yes, God's knowledge of the evidence against me is unsearchable. And His power to execute judgment against me is unstoppable. I know I have placed myself where God deserves to be. On the throne I am full of self-love, selfish ambition. I have placed myself where God deserves to be on the throne. And yet I know Scripture affirms that God has placed himself where I deserve to be on the cross, and by His grace, His mercy, He has made me one with His beloved son, in his death, in his burial and in His resurrection. And now, as a Christian, I enjoy the benefits of the cross. And God's forgiveness, hear these words, God's forgiveness supersedes my sinfulness. God's forgiveness supersedes my sinfulness. God's merit eclipses my guilt. And God's righteousness hides my vileness. I have come to realize in the depths of my soul that with Him there is forgiveness. And what is the result? That He might be feared. Great love springs out of great forgiveness. Now I fear to lose one look of his love. I fear to lose one word of his kindness. I fear to lose one touch of his tenderness. That is the transforming power of forgiveness. That where forgiveness is understood, That where mercy is tasted, where grace is experienced, there will of necessity be fear. There will be awe and wonder of this God, of who he is in himself and how he has visited sinners from on high. That's what the psalmist does in the second place. He appeals to God's forgiveness. The third thing he does, bringing us into the realm of verses 5 and 6, He waits for God. He states it three times. Verse 5. There it is. Number 1. I wait for the Lord. Number 2. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. Number 3. Verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. And so three times he declares I am now waiting. In the first couple of verses, he cried out to God. Verses 3 and 4, he appeals to God, and in particular, his forgiveness, his very nature. Now in verses 5 and 6, he waits for what? For God. It may strike us as strange when we first read that and think of it, because we might think to ourselves, reason to ourselves, I don't don't get this. Okay, there he is, he's drowning, figuratively speaking. Drowning because of his troubled conscience, tormented mind. His realization of an offended God and God, God, God is all judgment and he recognizes and understands and esteems the peril he is in. And out of that depth, he cries and he acknowledges, yes, God's righteousness to provide that wonderful backdrop, that black offsetting that light of God's wonderful forgiveness. What's he waiting for? He's already articulated it. He's already expressed his problem. He's already cried out for mercy, and he's already appealed to God's forgiveness. Oh, we dare not miss this. The forgiveness is not the end. The forgiveness is merely a means to an end. He is not waiting for forgiveness now. What is he waiting for? The Lord. It was the very absence of the Lord which threw him into that pit to begin with. It was the absence of God which threw him into the depths to begin with. It was God gone from the soul in terms of the psalmist's experience of God. In terms of his experience, his appreciation of God. God is gone from the soul and that is what plunges him into the depths. My God is gone. And I know why he's gone. It's my sin. And that tormented conscience takes hold. He cries out for mercy. And he appeals to his forgiveness. And having done so, he now waits. My soul's waiting. The timing, that's in God's hands. But my soul is waiting. Waiting expectantly for what? For the return of the Lord. The return of his presence. The return of God's enlightening. God's refreshing, God's comforting presence. Dare I ask? Yes, I dare. How many of us here right now have been living for some days, some weeks, some months? Is it even possible some years without the enlightening, refreshing, comforting presence of God. A dark shadow has descended upon the soul. And uh, here's why, Christian. It's right here black and white. If we care to look and we care to apply it, here is why. It is because God has placed you in the depths. And he has placed you in the depths because of unconfessed sin. He has placed you in the depths because of unforsaken sin. He has placed you in the depths because of unrepented sin, man. Stop blaming your wife; she's not the problem. Woman, sister, stop blaming the kids or the deal you've been handed; it's not the issue. Christian, stop blaming the pastor. No one blames me. We have to change that. Stop blaming Ike, the elder. Stop blaming Pastor O'Brien, pastor of discipleship. Stop blaming, blaming, blaming for the darkness you've been living in for weeks, months, years. Stop blaming others and looking out of yourself for the cause, for the source of your perpetual state that you find yourselves in of spiritual drudgery. Stop blaming others and own up. Here's the psalmist's ordeal. He is in the depths. Why? Because God has placed him there. He has lost the experience of God's enlightening, refreshing, comforting presence. Experientially gone from the soul. And he alone is to blame. It's his sin that has put him there. And he acknowledges it. Finally. We don't know how long he's been in this state. Maybe he's only there for a couple of hours. You think of King David after he sinned with Bathsheba. It was close to a year he was in these depths. God left him there, languishing before he sent the prophet. The psalmist comes to this realization at some point in his experience as to where he is, what it means, and what the cause is. And he appeals to God's forgiveness with full confidence, knowing his very character, his very nature is to forgive. And then he declares what? Now I will simply, I will wait. I will wait for the Lord, verse 5. Oh, my soul waits. In his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Notice a couple of things, two things to be precise about his waiting. The first is this he waits confidently. This isn't wishful, wishy washy thinking on his part. He waits confidently. Verse 5 I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. Here it is, waiting confidently. And in his word, I hope. There's an unmovable rock. In his word, I hope. He has promised. This God who is unchanging in his very essence and being, he has promised. And he cannot and will not break his promise by covenant. He has covenanted himself. He will be my father. And I will be his child. And when I confess my sin, he will come again. And the psalmist has this assurance. And so it is a waiting. But it's not a waiting. Boy, I wonder what's going to happen. Let's wait and see. That's not the waiting. He knows what's going to happen. He doesn't know precisely when. But he knows exactly what's going to happen. He is waiting confidently in his word, I hope. And notice secondly, he waits longingly. That's how we're to make sense of verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord. You know, you first read this, well, this is, this is gibberish, what's this got to do with anything? And then he repeats it twice. No, it's because he's emphasizing the fact that he is waiting longingly, yearningly, more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Won't ask for a show of hands. I know most of them, some of the guys here who work the, uh, the night shift. Right, You know what he's talking about. I little know what he's talking about. When I was 20, spent a summer working for Ontario Hydro, four months. So the hydro electric generating station in Ontario, four months, three shifts. First shift, eight, morning, four in the afternoon. Second shift, four in the afternoon, 12 midnight. Third shift, yes, 12 midnight, eight in the morning. Shift one and two, no problem. Shift three, it always came around. And that first night, oh, brutal. You've been up 24 hours, maybe longer. And halfway through the night, the eyes are what? Start to glaze over. sore, Dreary. The head is fuzzy. And the body is heavy. And you're looking at the clock every 30 seconds. You're looking at your watch every other 30 seconds. And you're just looking, 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 waiting, waiting, waiting. Watching, watching, watching. For what? 8 o'clock to roll around. You're waiting for the sun to come up. You know it's going to come. And you're waiting and all your anticipation, your attention as on when it can come and when you can finally go to bed, that's what he's trying to convey here. You think of the watchman, there he is up in the tower or the city wall or at the city gate. He dare not sleep and he knows what his responsibility is and he's watching, he's guarding the people in the city and here's what he is looking for. Yes, he's looking for these enemies and other people coming, but here's what he's really looking for, he's looking for the sun. He's looking for the first glimpse of the sun on the horizon when he knows it's over. Finally, my shift is done. I can go on. And he's waiting expectantly, yearningly, longingly. And that is how the psalmist is waiting. Yes, he finds himself in the depth. From the depth, acknowledging his sin, he cries out for mercy. He cries confidently for mercy because he appeals directly to God's very nature, his forgiveness. And he is assured of God's forgiveness, but now he must wait for what? God's return to the soul, that sweet freshness of God visiting the soul experientially. And he waits with earnest expectation. Now having done that, he does a fourth thing. And that brings us into verses 7 and 8. The psalmist invites us to hope in God. Verse 7, O Israel, the community of faith. O Israel, hope in the Lord. He doesn't leave it there. He could have. He does not leave it there. He gives two incentives. Please, please, please do not miss these. John Owen camped out on verse 4 for a long time. I've been camping out on verse 7. I plan to camp out on verse 7 for a long time. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. He gives two incentives, two reasons for hoping in the Lord. Number one, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. Steadfast love unchanging love, unwavering love. We celebrate it. God is triune. He is Father, He is Son, He is Spirit. We celebrate it, that God loves Himself. The Father loves the Son. Oh, and the Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father. The Son loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father. Mutual love, mutual joy, mutual delight. Mutual satisfaction, perfect, complete. Do you know what that means about God? It means He doesn't need to love anything else. Nor does He need anything or anyone to love Him. You know what it actually means? God gains nothing by us loving Him. His love in Himself is Perfect. God is the object of his perfect love, and he is satisfied in himself. Do you know why that should be so encouraging to us? Because you know what our greatest need is? We need someone to love us who doesn't need us. Do you know why? Because it means his love isn't contingent upon us. It means his love isn't contingent upon our... Performance. How are you doing today, Christian? How have I been doing this past week? Well, I wonder if that means God still loves me. His love for us is not contingent upon our performance. His love for us is not earned. His love for us is not merited. His love for His people in Christ Jesus is covenantal before the foundation of the world. He set His love upon His people. And that love is unchanging because He is unchanging. That love is unwavering because He is unwavering. That love does not experience ups and downs. Because you know what? God doesn't experience ups and downs. God is immutable, unchangeable. And His love for His people, therefore, is what? It's a beautiful word. Steadfast, unshakable, Unmovable, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Learn from my experience. I've confessed my sin. I'm now waiting upon the Lord to revisit my soul. Learn from my experience. Imitate me. You too have sinned. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. And here's an incentive for doing so. For with the Lord there is what? There is steadfast love. And he gives them a second incentive as if they needed it. Last part of verse 7. And with him, so the first, with him there is steadfast love. Now the second, with him there is what? There is plentiful redemption, plentiful redemption. Old Testament, what does this guy know about redemption? Old Testament, what could he possibly teach us about redemption? We dare not lose sight of the fact that people in the Old Testament were saved exactly as we are saved. People in the Old Testament were saved on the basis of what the Lord Jesus Christ would accomplish at Calvary's cross, just as we are saved on the basis of what Christ has already accomplished at Calvary's cross. People in the Old Testament, just like us, David, Abraham, the rest of them, they were saved through faith. Faith in what? In what the Lord Jesus would accomplish at Calvary's cross, just as we're saved in faith through what Christ has already accomplished at Calvary's cross. That's why Paul declares in Romans three, God put God put Christ, the Lord Jesus, he put him forward. I think the New American says he put him on public display as what? As a propitiation. As his blood. As a propitiation, a propitiatory sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice to be received by faith. And then Paul adds these words This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Former sins? Whose former sins? Abraham's, Noah's, Esther's, Ruth's, Rahab's. David, all the Old Testament saints, God passed over their sins in forbearance on the basis of what? On the basis of what he would accomplish at Calvary's cross where he put on display whom? His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a propitiation by his blood to be received through faith. The psalmist knew what redemption was. The psalmist knew the depth of his sin. He knew the height of God's mercy. And he knew that God is forgiving, but God is only forgiving why or when? When his justice is satisfied in a substitutionary bloody sacrifice where life is given for life. That was his hope. That was his expectation. That was his anticipation. And so he makes this appeal to the community of faith. You must remember hope in the Lord when you find yourself in the depths of Turn to Him. hope in Him. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. And be assured of these two truths. That with the Lord there is steadfast love. That's number one. And with Him there is plentiful redemption. You know, you, I... Oh, let me try to put this in very simple terms. We have disobeyed the law. It's a given. It's a non-starter. We have disobeyed. We have broken... We have transgressed God's law. In so doing, we need to understand that we have sinned against God's goodness. Again, remember, guilt. Guilt isn't a feeling. Guilt is a condition. Everyone is guilty in God's sight. Here's the problem. People don't actually feel the significance of their condition. People don't weigh it, generally speaking. They live with what, with what Martin Luther termed the presumption of merits. They live with the presumption of merits. Yeah, I've done some bad stuff, but also done some pretty good stuff, I'm presuming. And in the balance, the good stuff will outweigh the bad. And they never enter into those depths, although that is precisely where they are. They never perceive themselves there. They never see themselves as languishing like a, like a drowning man, gasping for air, And they never cry out. This idea that they have transgressed God's law, it's it's weightless, weightless upon the soul. Oh, but understand that in transgressing God's law, you have sinned against God's goodness. You have grieved God's spirit. Understand this. You have belittled Christ's blood. You have belittled Christ's blood, your sin, my sin, is the cause of the streams of blood that flow from his side. Uh, I was thinking about this a lot this past week, and I forgive me if I take too much uh, creative liberty here, but I think of the Lord Jesus speaking to me. I'm not hearing voices. I'm not going down that road. Certainly not. But I think of him speaking to me when I sin. I hear him saying that I leave glory to become a reproach for you that I assume the form of a servant to endure humiliation for you that I suffer spiteful opposition for you that I bear the depths of hell for you that I experience desertion Deprived of the countenance of my Father's love for you. What more could I have done for you? What more could I have done for you? When I had nothing left but my life, my blood, and my soul, I gave them all for you. that you might live by my death, be washed by my blood, And be saved by my soul being offered for you. And how have you responded to my love? Do you choose your sin over me? Do you prefer your lust over me? By your laziness and foolishness, do you turn away from me? Go, you unkind and ungrateful soul. And see if you can find another Redeemer. Like me. Now, if that doesn't put you in the pit, there is no hope for your soul. That casts me into the depths. And as I find myself in the depths and the waves flowing over me, overwhelming me, I hear myself crying out to God for mercy. And I cry confidently why? Because the word of God shows me the nature of God. Yes, he is righteous and he will judge the unrepentant. But with him there is forgiveness. And I appeal to his forgiveness. And I do so confidently how fixed upon these two wonderful truths out of seven verses. Verse seven. I never lose sight of them. That with my God there is steadfast love. And with my God there is plentiful redemption. Our God, we do worship you this day. We celebrate your greatness, infinite, incomparable majesty. And we celebrate your goodness as displayed wondrously upon Calvary's cross in giving your son for sinners. We pray now for your word and for your spirit to work by and through your word effectually, powerfully, meaningfully. And we pray that you would bring each and one to that place this day where we rediscover or perhaps discover for the first time the wonderful depths of your forgiveness, which eclipses the terrible depths of our sinfulness. We ask it in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ,